we are back for our final installation of the medieval romance series. And okay, final. <laughs> this is the final. I yeah, swear. we'll see. <laughs> to cap it off, I would like to start us out with a quote from one of my sources today. The medieval occupies this pre-literal, pre-realist space for us. It's a space where the fantastic feels like it could have happened. And perhaps more importantly, it's a space for thinking about big, abstract social questions about trauma and collective memory without the entanglements of literalist historical fiction. With that nugget in your brains, welcome back, dear listeners. Let's dive into it. Hey there, romance nerds. I'm Jen. And I'm Jackie. We're two librarians from Nopal in upstate New York, and you're listening to Raging Romantics. In this podcast, we like to think a little too deeply about romance books. If you're into theory, history, and raging about romance landia, then you should stick around. Please be advised that some of the things we talk about may not be suitable for younger listeners. Content warnings for episodes are available in the show notes. Jen, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. All right. Let's rage! Mine and Thomas's reaction at the same time to this joke. Okay, Jen, go ahead. Are you really going to lean over like that? <laughs> For you, anything. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if you're going to feel that way after this joke. It's oh pretty boy. bad. So, hey, Jackie and Thomas. Yes. Mm. Why didn't women play the lute in medieval times? Oh, God. Why? Oh. Because they got minstrel cramps. <laughs> That's good. Oh my god. <laughs> you get it? That was simultaneously it, so bad. Does Thomas get and it? so good. I think Thomas does by the state of how red his cheeks are. <laughs> oh. Yes, that's right, listener. We have Thomas back with us. Everybody say yay. Yay. I mean, he probably regrets it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he chortles in the background. <laughs> Thomas, do you have anything to say for yourself? I've never been more sure of a decision in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I did ask Thomas like a week ago. I was like, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? He goes, sure. What are we talking about? Medieval. Okay. I've never read Medieval. <laughs> As always, a shout out to Nopal for hosting this podcast and letting me ramble on about Medieval for two months long now. Um, if you've stuck with us through this whole series, dearest gentle listener, thank you so much. As I've said, as I said in part one of this, I've been leery to approach Medieval romance because it is so huge, at least in my brain. When we covered Scottish and Viking, those are, while still huge, a little bit more of a microcosm than general Medieval as a whole. Can we please get the that's what she said joke out of the way now? Which one? The, it's huge. That's what she said. Anyways, that's been going through my brain. Oh, yeah. No, I totally went over my head. Okay, good. I thought that's what you were chortling about. No, I was looking later in your script. Oh, okay. <laughs> Remember, medieval covers 1,000 years of history, the entire world, and a lot of stuff that went down. But with Jen and Nopal's graces, <laughs> I graces. feel we've been able like to. Like you asked for permission <laughs> for any of this. <laughs> this is very true. Better to ask forgiveness than permission. <laughs> I feel we've been able to cover a good corner of not only medieval ethos as it pertains to Europe and especially Britain, but also a good look into how we approach medieval romance. Something I haven't said before is that it can be hard for a reader to separate themselves from our modern sentiments and place ourselves back in the mindset of what it could mean to be a person living in these historical eras. For someone who's trained in those eras like me with a medievalist degree or a Napoleonic academic talking about the cultural impact of the wars on the demand for wool and cotton during the Regency, it's a little easier to shape our brains around concepts. But for the general reader, and please keep in mind, I'm not saying the general reader is not smart. You all possess beautiful, critical thinking brains, which is why you have such excellent podcast taste. But for the general reader conceptualizing medieval as it was in relation to our concept of modern romance can be difficult. Stop having sidelong glances with each other. It was one. Jen and Thomas are cheating on me on the other side just of the table. Just a little bit. <sighs> We're just so invested. <laughs> <laughs> we can't keep it together. Um, for the general reader, it can be difficult to conceptualize medieval as it was in relation to our concept of modern romance. That's the author's job, to do their research to help the reader escape into those tales and settings a little more easily, to understand them a little better. That's why, in my opinion, Regency is so popular as a historical genre. 
As we've said, Regency has become a sandbox where there are historical tidbits that we adhere to, of course, carriages and assignations and dukes and balls and corsets and all those things. But it's almost become this fantastical version of Regency. There were not 300 young, attractive dukes running around London in the summer of 1820, all looking for eligible young ladies. But because of hashtag romance reasons, we can say that there was and it makes sense and there's a level of believability to it. Medieval is similar in that aspect in that medieval fiction that we read today is largely fantasy. Like the quote at the beginning insinuated, medieval has become a place where, like with Game of Thrones or The Witcher or Throne of Glass, we can apply modern disillusions and issues like politics or racism or classism or nuclear war while viewing it through a different modern cultural lens. But medieval romance is an interesting beast because unlike Regency romance, there's almost this expectation of historical realism that gets applied to medieval settings outside of fantasy. We expect accurate dates, clothing, food, rulers, lands, conditions, all while playing in a medieval sandbox. And that makes it difficult on authors, I think. I'm guilty of this too. Like in my interview with Emma, who is a wonderful author and did her due diligence with writing, one of my first questions for her was, what experience do you have with medieval history? Almost as though I was expecting her to couch her discussion in an aspect of academia. I would not ask the same thing of Tessa Dare for Regency. Really? No. Why? Why would I? It's I Regency think I asked romance. Her. Did you? Yeah, because when. Oh, I, you met her. Because I met. Yeah. <coughs> yeah I met Tessa Dare. Oh, yeah. Dare. Here's, Th- here's Thomas's reaction. Oh, you did? I did, That's yeah. Amazing. I, I didn't know to, that. That's so cool. I went to this really cool romantic convention thing in Connecticut, like right before COVID. Not right before, like the year before COVID. And my friend actually paid for like the extra VIP extra for Whoa. me to like go sit at a table with her. And she got into it because she was writing um, Pride and Prejudice fan fiction. Because <gasps> she loved that book. So I think it was like connected to her love of the book. Wow, you've been in the presence of greatness. I, I could barely <laughs> hold on to myself. I had to like go outside of the room and scream a couple of times. Oh, so jealous. Just wow. like chill out for a minute. <laughs> Sarah McLaughlin was there too. Not McLaughlin, not the artist. Sorry. <laughs> McLean. The arms no. of an angel. <laughs> I was not in the arms of an angel. I was with um, Sarah McLean. I just cannot. But I was, that was like a very quick high because I spent all my time with Tessa Dare because like it was amazing. Why wouldn't you spend all your time with Tessa Dare to be yeah. fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, okay, but you didn't ask Tessa Dare about the Regency economy of cotton and wool. Mm, not that specifically. <laughs> I mean, we did We did talk yeah. about Regency a little bit, and we were kind of just, like, talking about romance in general. And yeah. Tessa Dare is also an exception because she is an academic, yeah. so <laughs> that may have been a bad, a bad example. You guys get what I'm saying, though. Um, so that's going to be how we frame this discussion today. We're going to be talking about medieval isms, believability, and the rise and downfall of the medieval bodice ripper because of those topics. Let's start by laying ourselves bare, please not literally. Jen, Thomas... What experiences do you have reading medieval romance? I mean, I sure I, I'm I'm sure I read it at some point. I can't say it's been a favorite. No offense. Mm. I definitely have done like a Connie Mason. I've definitely done like some littler things. Like, yeah, I don't have a whole lot of foundation to go off of with medieval. I mean, maybe some night like maybe like Highland is probably the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't have any experience <laughs> with medieval. I I wrote I read a yeah. I read one of Tessa Dare's, like, Scottish Highlander romances. But mm-hmm. I don't really remember when that was set. Uh, but everything I've really read is contemporary. I've only just recently gotten into historical in general. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning so much here. There you go. <laughs> and... Um... I think I'm on the opposite end of the spectrum to nobody's surprise. (laughs) I've said a lot of times my first romance novel was Sunset Embrace by Sandra Brown. But in reality, that's kind of a cop out. My very first ever romance novel was this old school medieval paperback picked up from a library book sale. Shout out to Manlius Library. And I'm so mad at myself because I got rid of this book like really long ago. I think because I was hiding it from my mom and I was kind of like, I got to throw it out. She doesn't see it. Um, And now I can't remember the title or the author and I can't find it anywhere with what I do remember. I've even posted on forums like I went on Reddit and library thing. I was like, somebody please help me find this book. So if there's a listener out there who knows a medieval romance has a green cover and I think it had a sword and an amulet on the cover. It's got a step back with a blonde knight and a dark haired heroine. And the plot has something along the lines of the heroine lives in the woods. She's got a group of children. She's their caretaker. She might or not might not be a witch or like practice general medicine. There was something with plant medicine. I remember that much. And the knight was sent to collect some or one of the children 
and they all go back to the castle with him and i remember some sort of spicy scene that involved an overturned boat in a rainstorm please help <laughs> jen's rolling her eyes at me <laughs> anyways i think it's safe to say i obviously have a little more experience with the medieval than either jen or thomas and i think that's okay because for this discussion you don't have to have read any romance any medieval romance any medieval you have to have read romance well obviously. okay that's fair i think we're good there i think i just glitched we again saying that, that. <laughs> thomas have you read a romance novel one or two okay or we're two. good okay we're safe. i think we're safe cool yeah. cool um and you have to have listened to our last two episodes are we in the clear okay oh you cool. did i sent him to Aww. him so yeah he had no choice that's so nice um because chivalry is incredibly important to the bodice ripper and to the rest of romance to be honest but as we discussed in part two it's not actual historical chivalry that we conceptualize instead it's a highly romanticized notion of the originally originally military ethos what started as a way of gaining honor and loyalty and reflecting value to a military society has since been i'll say it it's been bastardized into something that's just about holding doors for women and listen obviously i'm not saying that that's not important be a good person don't be a douche canoe but at the same time chivalry does not mean what you think it means and as a medievalist i always find it really interesting that we've taken all of these things that made up medieval chivalry and kind of boiled them down into this like very narrow mindset of what it means to be a man However, I think that's also partially why bodice rippers, medieval bodice rippers, were so popular. We talked about the romantic court of Eleanor of Aquitaine and how that influenced literature and artists at the time. It helped create an artistic sphere for chivalry that stretched forward into depictions of knights in a romance and a romantic setting for centuries to come. As we grew out of the medieval period, this courtly romance remained popular with artistic depictions. The romantics of the 19th century certainly glommed onto it, as a matter of fact, and wrote some of the most popular medieval tales that are still referenced today. And Thomas, if you have anything to say, just like raise your hand or just shout and I'll hand you the mic immediately. Okay, cool, cool. Ivanhoe by Sir Walter Scott was written in 1820, and though it wasn't Scott's first book or most popular, it remains one of the most synonymous with the Romantic movement. Set during the reign of Richard I, it, it revolves around the lingering enmity between the Normans and Saxons, remember that you two, and follows the Saxon protagonist Sir Wilfred of Ivanhoe, who is out of favor with his father for his allegiance to the Norman king Richard the Lionheart. It's about love in the sense of upholding love in a courtly manner with his queen of beauty, Rowena, 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 how do we think of Rowena? Okay, cool. Um, and how his love will save her from the evil man she is set to be married to. But it's also about Ivanhoe upholding his sense of honor and duty in the face of lingering animosity between native Saxons and the conquering Normans. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, which I did not think was a real book, I recently discovered, like when I wrote this script, that it was actually a real book, is by Mark Twain and was published in 1889 and is perhaps one of the earliest medieval time travel books. It's about Hank Morgan, a 19th century citizen of Hartford, Connecticut, who is transported back to early medieval England and has adventures in King Arthur's Court. And it is satire. It's Twain's response to the quote-unquote serious romantics like Scott, who, in Twain's eyes, were taking themselves way too seriously. It's kind of like Monty Python in that there are a lot of witty one-liners and the body count at the end is ridiculously high, but like in a funny way. And to be fair, okay, I knew it was a real book. I just not re did not realize it was actually written by Mark Twain. Yeah. I thought it was like Brandon Sanderson pretending to be Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. So That's fair. You know. But no, it's really Mark Twain. I thought it was a movie. It is a movie, isn't it? Yeah, but I thought it was just like a movie. Oh, yeah. okay. Kind of like Monty Python. Yeah. Okay, cool. You've never seen Monty Python, have you? I've saw one of them. Did you see the whole I don't girl? remember which one. Oh, okay. I was, yeah. Mom! I, think I so. didn't vote for him. Yeah. Okay. Thomas, have you seen? I saw a clip in my friend's bathroom once. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very specific memory. <laughs> I think I laughed. <laughs> well, that's a good start, at least. You at least know who Monty Python is. And finally, where would we be where would we be without mentioning Robin Hood? Because if you're like me, your biggest first introduction to the medieval was an obsession with Kevin Costner's bemulleted version of The Prince of Thieves. The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood of Great Renown in Nottinghamshire was first published by Howard Pyle in eighteen eighty three and conglomerated a bunch of earlier legends of Robin Hood to make him into more of a hero, rewritten for children to read. Does it count if I liked the cartoon? Sure. Then yes, I like medieval stuff. Oh, the one. Oh, the I Disney was obsessed version with the the fox. Yes. Yes. Oh yeah, there were experts. If if we're going off of that. Yeah, yeah that was awesome. Yeah, I yeah, loved that totally. thing. Oh yeah, yeah we love medieval. Mm -hmm. It totally counts. Have you seen the Black Cauldron? No. No. <sighs> okay, 
I saw men in tights. We are men. Yeah. We're men in tights. Yeah. Tights. We're actually experts. There we go. We did it. Okay. <laughs> I need another microphone. <laughs> um, the Romantics pioneered this chivalrous hero romance romances emulated but it was thanks to the bodice rippers of the mid-20th century that the knight really hit the ground running even if he lost a few pieces of clothing along the way before we break into a discussion of why we think there's less medieval romances out there in the last 20 years i want to first talk about why i think medieval became so popular to begin with i didn't do the thing where i tried to trace the first medieval bodice ripper because i kept running into some very interesting issues a lot of them have no online metadata and even fewer of them have online ebooks and metadata for those of you who aren't library archives museum or computer nerds is data about data or data about data it's the nitty-gritty information about something so for a book metadata can include the author the page count the font type and size the paper material whether it's hardcover paperback or trade paperback trade paperback the isbn the subject headings and so on and so on and so on and as a sidebar i love metadata it is one of my favorite things i love data about data to further muddy the waters, as I spent the first however many minutes of this episode and last episode saying, medieval romance stretches its roots back beyond the bodice ripper. And so trying to trace that first instance of, ah, oh, yes, a knight and a swooning lady on a 12th century Norman tower is kind of difficult. There's even more nuance to this because it is my personal belief that the medieval bodice ripper evolved out of the fantasy romance. If you go back and listen to our sci-fi episode, which is number 33, in case you needed a callback, I mentioned authors like Joanna Lindsay and Anne McCaffrey, who are doing interesting genre blending things between sci-fi, paranormal, fantasy, and romance with things like time traveling, Vikings in space, or dragon riders on an alien planet. And other historical romances like Viking and Scottish were and always have been incredibly popular. Go listen to those episodes, Wink, Wink, and Unjudge. And, of course, these time frames overlap perfectly with medieval. The quote-unquote Vikings were medieval people, and Scottish spans everything from post-Roman 5th century up through contemporary. So, of course, you're going to have medieval in there. But the strictly medieval bodice ripper. Who is she? What does she cover? Why was she so popular? You guys know me. We're getting into it right now. Jen, Thomas, neither of you have really read medieval, but what is your impression of what this subgenre, the medieval bodice ripper, what do you think a typical bodice ripper that is medieval looks like? So we're talking about something from like the 70s, 80s? Yes. Probably pretty rapey. Yes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Since I don't have a microphone. <laughs> like I'm pretty sure based like lots and lots of heaving bosoms. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. every single cliche you could imagine. I is probably attached especially to medieval um i bet there's a lot of like racism in there because i'm sure the guy's coming back from the crusades and he's got like a like a dark-skinned enemy who's following him back from constantinople Constantinople. thank you that one um you know and he's got a town bull if you will (laughs) (laughs) um you know and all that stuff's glorified so probably like a lot of like some gross like oh i remember this in the war when i killed 20 men and it's like, ooh, good for you. But it's really kind of like, eh. Um, oh, and she's going to be in a tower. Okay. And she's going to have lots of billowing sleeves and billowing mm. hair. And probably if they want to make her sassy, then she probably knows some medicine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so she's independent in that sense. But otherwise, she's probably a little more meek and milder. And, you know, the knight's got to come save her because yeah. it's literally the damsel in distress. Yeah. Maybe she reads. Maybe she's literate. Ooh, like, if ooh, they want to make her super crazy. There you go. Yeah, yeah, she can read a little bit, and she can, like, stitch up the the giant cut on his abs. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, For comfort. Ooh, yeah. yeah. But, again, I feel really gross saying that. I feel like I'm every stereotypical person who hates romance saying that. <laughs> <laughs> but if we're talking 70s, 80s, that like that's where that stuff belongs. And so. we love it. Kind of. Eh, Not really. We have thoughts. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of how I was picturing it, especially after listening to your previous episode mm-hmm. about it and the thoughts on virginity and women's mm-hmm. sexuality at the time the whole sexual assault rape does yeah. is what comes to mind mm-hmm. when I think about those books and a lot of toxic masculinity that are just mm-hmm. accepted and perhaps glorified mm-hmm. and no real deeper commentary on that that we see now in historicals that really unpack the thoughts on gender roles. And probably no queer people. Mm. 
so oh and you know going off the virginity thing probably women as prizes because i bet mm. a lot of times it's like oh you did such a yeah. good job killing people in the crusades here's my second daughter's niece or whatever <laughs> Wait, some like connection to the king because i just want to honor you so much so here's some land here's a girl go have a f- oops sorry <laughs> go have a fun wedding night and then maybe by page 120 you've fallen in love with each other mm-hmm. that is all very good but you've only briefly touched on one of the most important parts of the medieval bodice ripper the horse marriage i said marriage a little bit no you briefly oh, generally okay. touched on it well but yeah yes, but like, yes. i feel like with romance <laughs> the you gotta, horse <laughs> oh is this because it's like the 80s because i feel like usually in romance it takes so long to get to the marriage point yep. but i guess because it's the 80s and we can't have sex you before know before marriage. marriage or we're whores like you have yep. to get married real quick yeah okay fine fair enough brava brava okay. so those are all very good summations, very good guesses for people who've never read Medieval before, or at least have maybe read one. Um, the Medieval Bodice Ripper started to rise up out of the fantasy, like I said, and other historical genres as its own creature during the 1970s, but came to the heyday in the 80s and early 90s, a true millennials genre. This book often played on conflict. Enemies to lovers, forced marriage, marriage of convenience, dubious consent, all those were huge to the Medieval Bodice Ripper, which I'm just going to say MBR from here on out because that's a long phrase so the mbr frequently it was set in that post-norman conquest period so post 1066 and frequently in the 12th and 13th centuries when norman saxon conflict was still a huge factor again playing into enemies to lovers pipeline furthermore mbr as that pipeline insinuated was often set in england france and scotland and sometimes ireland the scotland setting tends to get a little conflated with scottish romances as a whole turning more into like clan enemies than larger nationwide enemies Frequently, the tropes in MBR fell under conquering knight pledged to feisty native English heroine and often featured marriage as an inciting incident. Marriage is always an inciting incident in my family, too, to be honest. A foreign knight who had won land, been given land by his sovereign, had inherited land through dubious means, there was land involved, um, would be pledged in marriage to a woman who either originally owned or lived on that land, and the woman was often a little bit reluctant to join hands in marriage to this invading force. Remember our discussion from last time of knights and damsels in, deta- and damsels in towers, and damsels usually hiding from the knights? Well, they were always married. There was always a virginity taking scene, pain level depending on the type of book and the author. And then the rest of the book was then them coming to terms with their desire, love, tolerance for one another under the guise of marriage and land ownership. Now, there were some romances, if we look outside of the Viking and Scottish subgenre and just stick with the knight, that did break this mold. And did, you guys just have to read the description that I put on the side here. I'm going to read it for you. So this is a this is a book description. Brigitte is forced to yield her innocence to the desires the warrior lord arouses in her heart. But her surrender will vanquish the handsome knight, awakening within him a love as mighty and relentless as his conquering sword. You know, that's kind of the same vibe as Flame in the Flower. Yes. You know? Kathleen Woodowice was, again, from what I could see, one of the earliest classic medieval mm-hmm. bodice rippers. Yeah. So it was the wolf and the dove, Mm -hmm. I think. And I couldn't get a hold of a copy. Otherwise, I would have read it before. But just that whole thing of, like, you know, the more he loves you, like, the weaker he gets until it's returned. And it makes him stronger at the same time. And Have we ever talked about that before? Flame in the Flower? No, that 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 thing you just said about his her love weakening him. Yeah, because and then it strengthens him when she returns it. Ah! I don't know. It's a whole thing. Because there's a whole part in the book where he's just like wasting away because it's like, I know you hate me, but I love you so much. Ah." There are so many metaphors to that in medieval because of like the whole making a sword thing (laughs) where you have to quench a sword. Yeah. So like when you make an actual sword, you have to weaken this metal before Mm. you can like make it stronger. Oh, look at that. Metaphor. Yes. Metaphor. (laughs) Thank you. Exactly. (laughs) Um, sometimes the hero and heroine, because as Thomas said, there were no queer people in the medieval era, according to medieval bodice rippers, or if they were, they were the feisty gay sidekick. Really? Yeah. Oh. It was like maybe one or two that okay. I've ever come across. Were they like outright gay or was it more like, oh, he's got like a, it was a male roommate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They were friends all along. Mm-hmm. The troubadour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, sometimes they were pledged in marriage, for marriage from birth. Sometimes they succumbed to their passions and were forced to wed. Sometimes... My favorite. There was mistaken identity or perhaps a little duplicitousness on the behalf of the heroine. She might dress as a knight. <gasps> Shocking. And sometimes there's a nunnery involved. Makes it fun, you know? <laughs> but largely, you'll notice that marriage weighs heavily in medieval romances. As Jen said, it's not really a surprise. These were written in a time when really sex before marriage was still viewed as 
pretty sinful. Um, and we've talked about in other episodes, don't ask me which ones because I can't remember, the church, capital C, as a major influence on medieval life. Not the way we think of the church now really in regards to religion, although that's the time frame that these books were written in was, you know, church as a religion. You guys get what I'm saying. But more in regards to a sociopolitical force that dictated how you did everything in life, including your chivalric code. MBR demonstrated that, and while religion wasn't always forefront in the narrative, it did show often that tension and understanding that these were Christian nations, sex before marriage was a sin, and the romances of the 80s and 90s definitely adhered to these beliefs. So, what led to the rise in medieval romance? Besides the popularity of sci-fi, paranormal, and fantasy, I think that there were two important events. The U.S.'s bicentennial celebration of 1976 and the start of the Renaissance Fair. Planning for the U.S. Bicentennial began early in 1966, so thoughts were in people's brains way ahead of time. As 1976 grew closer, there was one very important question on Americans' minds. Who are we as a nation? The 19th century in American history was fraught with expansion, disillusion, dissatisfaction, war, and economic and sociopolitical change, just like any period, to be honest. But the 20th century was different in American history. While the first hundred years of our country had been about establishing ourselves as a nation, the second century became about reaffirming those beliefs and trying to come together through internal and external conflict. Please withhold judgment on the success of those endeavors. (laughs) The 20th century saw two major world wars, the likes of which decimated our population and our politics. Probably one of the biggest wars we had ever seen as a world outside of the Crusades. Sorry, I just tried to combine Crusades with chivalry, and it was like chivalry in my brain. It did not work. So outside of the Crusades. Scientific advancements led to uncertainty and a shifting belief system, and global travel led to more people seeing places they had never been before or had even believed in. But as a result of all of this forward movement through technology, infrastructure, economy, and social practices, the bicentennial led us to being even more interested in history than we had during the future-centric 50s and 60s. There was a quote-unquote new nostalgia for olden-timey things. Platform shoes and prairie dresses, folk music, and Little House on the Prairie – but also for our personal family history. Combining science with this nostalgia, genetics and personal family history, ancestry, became the theme of this bicentennial, with multicultural families looking at each other, looking at their lost family past due to immigration, war, and social injustice, and wanting to know where they came from. This led to a rise in fanaticism for all things history, and especially in white people, for a love of those places our families claim to have come from. Notice, dear listener, I say claimed. Because even though DNA testing had been around in some form or another since the 1880s and genetic testing rose to science's forefront in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't until the 2000s when ancestry was able to be confidently demonstrated by anyone who could afford a test. So ancestry prior to this was largely made up of family stories. And as an excellent example, my family is part Irish. My dad's side, Hoyt, is part Irish. And I grew up on the story of three brothers coming over from Ireland during the famine, and they came through Ellis Island, and they were renamed Hoyt, Hate, and Hyatt. I grew up on that, like all through high school and all this sort of stuff. Everybody in my family said this. And so I believed it. And then in college, my senior year, I had to take an American history course because they're like, you have to take one history course outside of your field of study, which was European history. Um, so I did. I took Jefferson to Jackson, and we read a book by, by James Fenimore Cooper, which is about groups of colonists coming to central and upstate New York area and they're all settling down and there's this one line in this book and keep in mind this book was written in the 1800s about you know it's really funny there's all these families coming over with all these brothers and they're all Irish and they all claim to have three brothers whose names were changed to Hoyt, Hate, and Hyatt (laughs) and it was like a record scratch I was like oh my family history is a lie Mm -hmm. and so I was inspired to do actual deep dives into my family history but those are the kinds of stories that people would have grown up on without the benefit of being able to do extensive research like I've been able to do with, you know, modern libraries or to do ancestry DNA tests and like actually see what DNA alleles or whatever parts of DNA there are that we have. So this fervor for our personal history led to a desire led to a desire for understanding that history, not only in nonfiction through database research, but also in the fiction we consume. Americana was heavy on on theme during this time period, but so too was Eurocentric history such as Scottish, Irish, German, English, French, French, etc. 
And I'm not washing over the xenophobia from this time period. Please don't think I am. I fully acknowledge that the bicentennial celebration and the years moving forward severely whitewashed history. Honestly, most of history was severely whitewashed, leading to increased cultural erasure, racial violence, and the loss of diverse and nuanced understanding of our history as a nation. We're still combating that today, there's no doubt. We've spoken in previous episodes of the endemic issues in romance and romance publishing. Lack of diversity is merely the weighty tip of the iceberg. Romance during this early period of Boz River was white, largely from affluent or upper middle class women, and was marketed towards a very specific subset of readers, white housewives. We're also still combating this legacy today. Keeping all of this in mind, the fanaticism for our history led to a rise of popular media reflecting that. Historical fiction authors such as Gabaldon and Philippa Gregory got their start during this time period, emphasizing women's narratives with undertones of romance for eras of history that resonated with their audience. And romance was not immune. Medieval, though, is an interesting choice, for, in my opinion, to hype up this fanaticism. And I think that's part of the reason why it didn't keep its popularity post 9-11. Knights are the perfect exemplar of the romance hero. Chivalry is literally what makes their position. And they fall perfectly into the dubious consent and enemies to lovers that was so popular of bodice rippers during this time period. Unfortunately, though, it didn't really play into the fanaticism that the rest of historical fiction did, like Scottish or like Viking. After all, few Americans were able to trace their ancestry back beyond their great-grandparents, let alone 800 years. Jen has thoughts. I'm just trying to kind of like put it in my head because my brain is bad. So so the bicentennial whatever made people more interested in where they came from. Yes. And most of those people who cared were white, so Europe. Yeah. And... They cared about medieval because of the knights and how, like, oh, look, they're the good ones. Yes. So there was this larger kind of understanding of medieval history, like with Robin Hood, starting, like, Mm -hmm. this huge fandom, we'll say, for medieval, right? And then the Bicentennial came along and people were like, ooh, history. Ooh, medieval. This Mm. is Europe. This is great. You know, my family's from England. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about medieval England. And, I mean, I would rather talk about Robin Hood than, like, Yeah, exactly. And then we'll get into it in a little bit, but I think that, you know, the realities of believing that romantic notion of oh I came from a medieval knight way back in 1221 Mm. um, versus like actually reading a medieval romance you're like I can't identify with this as my part of my family history who are the Normans who are the Saxons Mm. right it's not like saying oh the Scottish or the Irish or anything like that the French how many that's all the accents I can do so (laughs) thank you thank you do you have any thoughts Thomas no okay (laughs) no thoughts just vibes Jen has more thoughts though no, I'm still just kind of letting it absorb. Okay. Like like I said, my brain is bad. And it's okay. I spew a lot of stuff in this episode. Yeah, and I mean, it is it is kind of funny, though, to think of, like, that's the part that they latched onto. Mm-hmm. Just, like, this one set of, like, European, like, nuns and knights and damsels. And I think it was a partial latch. Okay. It was a an instant like oh medieval yes we're gonna like this Mm -hmm. but then as they started getting more into it they're like no this isn't really like the family history like the scottish like the cowboy Mm -hmm. like the viking it's less identifiable as part of my personal ancestry okay but it's like still attractive because it is still knights in shining armor Mm -hmm. which is literally what romance is about right right? so i think that there's still that epic that um bit of popularity to it because of that but i think that the initial interest from the bicentennial mm-hmm. quickly waned. But so like were there other instances of medieval interest or is this just well, in yeah, literature? We'll get to it. Oh, oh okay. That's I guess yeah. that's why I was struggling. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. About to get into it right now. Oh, okay. Okay. Secondly, the rise of popular counterculture helped feed into the medieval pipeline. The best way to demonstrate that? Renaissance fairs. I don't know why I said Renaissance with a French accent. Renaissance fairs. There we go. Now, dear listener, if you've ever had the pleasure to attend a Ren fair, first off, if you've never had the pleasure to attend a Ren fair, first off, they're fantastic and so much fun, and you definitely should. Summer and fall are Ren fair season, and there is something for everybody in the family. A Renaissance fair is meant to emulate an English village during Queen Elizabeth I's reign. It highlights Renaissance activities like armed tournaments mixed with modern interests like axe throwing. There's low-tech carnival rides, and you can spot the muscly men pushing the gears for the biking, Viking boat ride. It's a favorite spectacle of mine. There's food galore. There's drinks. There's all sorts of historical and fantastical garb and goodies to buy. Nowadays, the Ren Pair has become a carnival-like spectacle that borders on LARPing for a lot of attendees myself included thank you very much um but it doesn't didn't necessarily start out that way 
The first Renaissance Fair was held in California by L.A. history and theater teacher Phyllis Patterson and her husband Ron in 1963 and was called the Renaissance Pleasure Fair. Think Woodstock, but add in wimples. It quickly became an annual event, spreading to Northern California and beyond. As the counterculture of Cold War America grew, these body, fun, rabble-rousing carnivals touched a nerve with the hippie generation, and soon they began showing up in fancy dress, and the rest is history. And now I can practically hear you history nerds and Jen out there yelling, the Renaissance is not medieval! I wouldn't remember. Okay, fair. I don't remember the years. <laughs> not bad. It's the other run. history nerds, not Renaissance me. follows medieval. Um, but the popularity of these fairs fairies it's supposed to say fairs but the popularity of these fairs cannot be denied and the zeal they pay, place in fair lovers for all things historical and all things medievalism were nearly unmatched add in the fact that yes jousting was a huge draw for ren fairs and i think that readers were loving that they could get their kicks out of a medieval night and a real life setting that harkens back to our discussion earlier about you know romance heroes versus in life emulations okay we, we can we can talk about that in a little bit we'll draw it back I know you'll roll your eyes at it, so we're going to save it for later. <laughs> Today's fairs lend uh, more to a fantasy type of romance rather than medieval romance, and I think that leads us perfectly into our next discussion, the downfall of the medieval romance. So, Jen, Thomas, listening to my spiel and knowing everything over the past couple of episodes, why do you think medieval saw a decline in the late 90s and early aughts? Uh, I think... It was probably inspired by changing social values uh, as we got into the 90s and early 2000s and our roles and gender and as feminism changed, I think that the pleasure people were deriving from medieval romances of the 70s and 80s probably weren't very pleasurable anymore. I mm. mean, I haven't read one. But specifically, it's because I don't read them because I am aware of these dub conning and lack of agency towards women and toxic masculinity that I can't relate to. I don't want to relate to. And that's probably what was happening. And that's why things probably started moving towards fantasy or more historically inaccurate things that call themselves historical, but we just let it go because romance reasons. Mm-hmm. Isms. Isms, yes. isms, yeah. Yeah, I just wonder if it became like really quaint and like what's the what's a bad firm like word for retro? Like an like an antique, like a like nostalgic but not good nostalgic. Yeah, it's kinda nostalgic. like like old. Yeah. And I wonder too if some of the values that people attached to them, I don't know if they were as important in the nineties. Because it just feels like that was a decade with like a ton of tech advance and like people hustling and like very cutthroat capitalism. So I don't know if some of these ideas of like, oh, the knights saving the damsel, uh, you know, just based on a code of honor. Like, I don't know if people had that as much. I say that being born in the 90s. So it's not like I was really aware of it. One of um, my articles about Ren Fairs that I read was really interesting in that it talked about the popularity of Ren Fairs being that counterculture in direct opposition mm-hmm. to the like the techie stuff that yeah. was the 90s because it's this completely low tech there's no technology throughout all of it except for now you get credit card readers actually mm-hmm. no they can't even i think you have to pay by cash so yeah run fairs you still have to pay by cash at least all the run fairs i've been to so it's this completely low tech place that mm-hmm. you still go to and there's absolutely nothing there besides you know muscle men pushing around boats that you yeah. ride on or like men on horseback and women on horseback so um and i feel like too there were medieval romances because that's when i read like the connie masons and like the sandra hills and that was like 90s 2000s but that was what we had to read yeah not like had like we had to i mean like that's what we physically had to read that's what was supplied to us well, I mean, I just I went through the library, so yeah. I picked them out. <laughs> or, like, I went through the bookstores and helped Available. Myself. There we go. That was yeah. available. Yeah. Because, yeah, it was super popular, and there mm-hmm. were a lot of them during yeah. that time period. But I think that, like, I really liked what you, I liked what you both said. But I liked how you were, like, our changing social values kind of, like, meant we turned away from it. You know? Yeah, that was good. You guys did really good proud of you. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you. you're welcome. <laughs> I have three reasons why I think it's such mm-hmm. a lost genre. <laughs> um, but yes, I really like both of those. Um, I think that the onus of historical realism in historical fiction, which medieval romance lends itself more to than it does the medieval 
the medievalisms of, you know, like fantasy, medieval fantasy. As I said earlier in the episode, from medieval authors, we tend to expect accuracy when it comes to all these details, and sometimes that can be really difficult to access, let alone to describe. Plus, I feel like readers have this strangely high expectation of realism in medieval fiction, far past the degree we have with most romance. We expect romance to be escapist. Meanwhile, we expect historical romance to look at the clothing and the glittery stuff and the pretty things and hype that. We don't want to hear about the heroine having diarrhea over the side of the castle wall in the privy tower, which, thanks to the worms everyone had from eating very poorly cooked or rotten meat, was pretty regularly, to be honest. For us romance readers, I feel like we don't necessarily look for that much realism. Uh, Let me finish my statement. Hopefully this makes more sense. We do, of course, expect adherence to the historical era, but not to the point where it takes us out of the story. As Emma said in our interview, research for this time period can quickly get overwhelming and can definitely lead to rabbit holes. A lot of the time, I think that this can get weighty. It takes the reader out of the romance plotline, lending weight instead of the character's growth to the minutiae. And listen, romance readers love minutiae like any other reader, but I think that sometimes we might rather read about the hero taking care of the heroine and that minutiae rather than the intricacies of how his chainmail and plate armor is assembled we turn to other historical fiction for that can i add something because you know how i am about settings yes (laughs) like just thinking about what you just said thinking about the setting in medieval it seems really dirty and dark and i think that's another reason i'm not super attracted to it like the clothes sure because probably the clothes are pretty like simple with oh the billowing sleeves and like the off the shoulders and like the cool braids and like that kind of renaissance fit. so that is cool that i'll take or like the flowers in your hair cool but then you go to that disgusting castle where nobody the knows diarrhea how to clean over the something. side i wasn't yeah. even thinking i was reading i know it's didn't they used to put like hay and sawdust on the floor yes yeah, so. yeah and then the dogs are just everywhere not house trained and like people are just sleeping in corners and like there's no light they're supposed to be cleaned out at least like once a week they're supposed but... to be but that's in like supposed to yes why do you think the I, plague spread so yeah, quickly like, <laughs> I know that, like, I have not watched Game of Thrones, but I've seen, like, a little bit of Game of Thrones. And, like, and the nighttime castle stuff looks so gross. It just does. And, like, oh, you get the cool tapestry on the wall, but it doesn't really do anything to keep the wind out. And there's just, like, a massive great hall with, like, so many voices just, like, ah, 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 and, like, all the drunk people and the screaming and the tables. And just, like, ugh. <laughs> Yes, because mead was safer to drink than water. Yeah, exactly. And so, so was I'm beer. Like, yeah, and you just have a massive fire that honestly people like people probably fell into. <laughs> so I feel like Jen this, the is, realist. this is probably like on the opposite end of my feelings of spaceships and sci-fi. Yeah. Like the castles are just like, blah. And like, I understand probably hovels were not actually nice, but I bet an author could make a hovel sound a lot nicer yes. than these grand, uh, quote unquote, these grand houses castles whatever that the the rich people were supposed to live in yes they have. at least a hovel you could probably like patch it up with some mud and make it nice and like kick out the dog or the whatever so it's not like you know ruining the place you can have like a like a smaller fire that the child like your toddler doesn't crawl into yes jen has very clear i'm sorry just because i was thinking about it i'm like oh that's what i forgot that was one of the reasons i didn't like medieval is because it's so dark yeah medieval martha stewart yeah (laughs) (laughs) jen's gonna uh marie kondo the castle keep i just don't think this hay on the floor brings me joy okay i think we can sweep more often i think we can wash our hands wasn't it you who told me you said like in the last one that they would leave the food out all day so cool you like saw off the the mold but then you flies everywhere i hate flies i love spiders because i hate flies i want the spiders eat the flies Plus the mud. Yeah, I can't imagine just like the buzz of the flies everywhere and then you've got the mud on your dress. So, okay, I love the clothes until you get the stupid mud on your clothes. And then suddenly you don't want those long sleeves dragging on the floor. Especially if there's no indoor plumbing and drunk people are sleeping on the floor and probably throwing up everywhere. Now I'm on a rant because I realized, oh, this is my problem with medieval. Thank you for reminding me because I have very strong feelings about setting and none of this sounds romantic to me. The era does not. I think like the perfect medieval romance for me would be the knight rescues the princess from all of that awful things and he moves her into a nice little cabin by the sea. He moves her away from her diarrhea tower exactly. to the sea. <laughs> Gets her clean water and fresh meat. They have some nice, healthy sea air. They get fish. They have, like, I don't know, some cool, like, 
shells from the beach for decoration. I don't know, something cool like that. Not this gross, like, oh, I got a boar's head on the wall with all the <laughs> antlers. Yeah. I don't have to sit there and try to, to <laughs> sew. <laughs> Sorry, I think I'm done. Sorry, I Thomas. just, I just second like, that. Second. <laughs> and I briefly watched The Tudors. Mm. What era was that? The Renaissance. Okay. Um, just because Henry Cavill is in it. Yeah. Oh, yes. Um, but I just, and same with Game of Thrones, like when they have sex scenes, it looks like it would smell bad. Yeah. Like everyone was so musty. Mm-hmm. Imagine all the uterine infections, or whatever they're oh, called, UTIs. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh. My best friend likes to tell me that Game of Thrones, it just looks like the clothes smell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Like I know they take showers or baths for like sexy reasons or emotional plot reasons, but that, that is the only time they probably bathe. Yeah. Yeah. Everything smells. Yeah. yeah. And, like, this is the instance where the medievalist in me is like, well, let's place ourselves back in the medieval mindset and let's say, like, let's conceptualize, let's get rid of all of our modern ideas of what it means to be clean. I think I'd still be grossed out. But yeah, see, that's exactly it. In romance books, you don't want to do that. You want to keep your modern sentiments. Yeah. You want the night to smell like fresh, clean man sweat. Mm-hmm. You don't want mud everywhere. You want clean rushes on the floor. I want some real lights. You want no drunk people in the hall. Yeah. You want electric lights. Mm-hmm. You don't want flames everywhere you no. don't want tail which candles. is cool but then the suit is on the walls not suit sot suit sot 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 whatever it's all over the place so then it's again more grime everywhere yeah yeah so that- you would never get the smell of any of the stuff out of your hair or your clothes or like ugh. yeah it's great i wish i had mentioned that before but i forgot because it's been oh. so long since i've had to re- read a medieval or anything like this and like yeah, just the when they start talking about oh the the threshes on the on the floor need to be cleaned and ugh. no that is beautiful. We sent the maids off to like that's <laughs> perfect the walls example of, the diarrhea. of why <laughs> romance readers don't want medieval. At least Regency, Regency is cleaner. There were you know I get a lot of his- historical stuff and Regency is much cleaner and, and the balls pots. have light mm-hmm. and they they weren't throwing the chamber yeah. pots out the window yes. like. Portaloo! <laughs> I mean, they were still in some places, but you know, that was London. London was yeah. a different beast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That was good. <sighs> Perfect. Perfect. And you probably, your teeth rotted out. I mean, I know that's like all historical stuff, but like. The taste of kisses must have been disgusting. <laughs> you probably just could not, t- like, just no mouth. You had to say it that. It would have just been <laughs> despicable. Mm-hmm. All the sensory things are just coming See? to me at once. Yeah, you sure you still like medieval? <sighs> I don't know. Did we ruin I like it? medieval fantasy. How's that? <laughs> yeah, because then you can just make like you can make elves that go clean. Exactly. You can have Not in a gross way, Henry like Cavill Rowling, in like... a in a hot tub. Oh. Yeah, like with his white blonde wig yeah. being like. Mm-hmm. Even in that show, everything looks so dark. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. this just TV now? Is everything dark? Yeah. It's easier to see. <sighs> For those of us with astigmatism, not seeing spiky lights every single place is really nice. I need spiky lights or I can't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> you might want to talk to your doctor about that. Um, my second reason of why I think medieval um, lost a little more popularity besides Jen's sensory things and Thomas's gross kissing note that he just brought up. Um how seemingly niche of a genre medieval can be as yeah. a subgenre medieval can be, even though in real life, as we know, it's not even on the same continent as niche. We've all been there. You get in a mood read and you read everything you can on that subject, either until you get sick of it or horror of horrors, you run out of books. Well, with medieval, even I will admit that after the first 50 or so, they start to all feel the same. There is such a thing as being too niche. And for the vast majority of MBR to focus on the 12th, 13th century period and to focus on national relations as a plot device, you know, with marriages and inciting incident, it can get to be too samesies. I do think knights bore me. Mm. Like too much knights. Give me a lady knight. I'm like, heck yeah. That's one thing. But, and then like, really all the men are the same. Like yeah. they're knights. They're all cut and that's and paste. it. And like the women are at least are a little bit different. Like, like you could just have a normal run of the mill lady. But then I feel like I've also seen like, like you said before with the nunneries, like there's some nuns that run away or there's some like, I don't know, some nice village washer lady that gets picked up by the knight. You know, there's like, it feels he like he doesn't there's... shove her into the ditch. <laughs> <laughs> that's a callback. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it feels like there's different types of heroines. Yeah. And the hero is all just like, oh, here I am, the knight who saw some bad stuff in the Crusades, and I'm going to go get this castle, and here I am. Like, even all I have yeah. to say is knight in shining armor. Yeah, that's That's it. the medieval yeah. romance I think hero. That's what, maybe that's another reason I don't like medieval. Like, I have all these thoughts now. 
now that you're saying all this, so I'm like, happy. oh, this is another reason I don't like medieval because it's just like knights are just like <laughs> just boring. Except lady knights. Lady knights. Lady are cool. knights are cool. I will give you that. I just started reading. Um, it's Gwen and Art are not in love on Emma's suggestion, and it is so much fun. There is a lady knight that like mm-hmm. rides into the tournament, and everyone's like booing her, and she's just like stoic. And then she makes eye contact with mm-hmm. the princess and chills. <gasps> but even from that, like, okay, like the Tamora Pierce had like a bunch of like yes. Elena. And Ugh, then, um, love Tamora Pierce. Oh, God, I'm so sorry to the the other series that I've totally forgot about the girl coming up to be a knight. But there's like conflict in that. There's layers to that. There's all this stuff that could happen. A male knight, I'm just like. It's like, okay, sure. Yeah, we've seen it a thousand times. And the interesting thing about Tamora Pierce, I met her. She. <gasps> She's really oh, nice. Right. She's great. And she was talking about why she writes what she writes. Mm-hmm. And she is purposely writing with the awareness of where the genre has mm-hmm. stemmed from. So she was talking about uh, elven warriors in Tolkien's work who were women who would give it up because, you know, love and stuff. And so she was writing very intentionally. And I think maybe a lot of medieval romance authors aren't coming from that same awareness. And that's why we're running into these cookie cutter knights who are not being defamiliarized Mm -hmm. enough that we find it new or refreshing or interesting. That's nice. You always sound so smart. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't even know. It yeah, I would never say familiarized. I can't pronounce it half the way. <laughs> I would have to like defamiliarized <laughs> as I spelled it. But you are a hundred percent right. So Bravo. there's there's another Beautiful. one for the yes. anti-medieval. I love it. List. I love it. Um, plus, after 9-11, we didn't want the knight in shining armor. We wanted the immortal vampire That's who true. could survive any nuclear war, mm-hmm. right? Like a knight in Charmin, like that that shining armor is not going to hold up very no. well to a whole building falling on you. Yeah, one bolt and ping. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, as you said, fantasy, yep. medievalisms. There is a growth of fantasy and medievalism yep. coming out of 9-11. And really, I mean, fantasy has always been popular, but um, it only continued to grow in popularity, especially fantasy romance. And the medievalisms of fantasy that's really hard to say a lot medievalisms of fantasy gives readers everything they could want from medieval knights destriers swords politics sandals along with all the fun aspects of Mm. fantasy dragons mythic creatures imagined realms scenarios magic elves just pick the parts you like exactly literally any world you want build it as long as it's believable i'll read it Mm. but there's an additional part of why i think medieval fantasy has outstrided outstrode Outstridden the MBR. And that brings us right back to our opening quote, the allegory of fantasy. Romance as a genre is focused, as Jen and I always say, solely on the romance. Other stuff can go on. There can be other plot points and drama and action. But at the end of the day, it's only a romance book if there's an HEA or HFN, happily ever after for now. And if the primary story focuses on the relationship growth between the characters, that has to be the primary story. The strength of medieval fantasy is that it lends itself right into the tradition of medieval literature as a whole. We can have familiar things, like I said, like knights in shining armor, but then we can also have the fantastic things beyond that. And we can explore issues that are pertinent to our society today under the guise of a fantasy lens. Fantasy provides this perfect bridge, this allegory, between our modern world and our frustrations, but in a setting that isn't our world and still gives us that escapism. Think Game of Thrones. This is a huge, weighty political fantasy full of all sorts of issues. Yes, issues from the author and how the author writes women, but also it explores issues that are pertinent to our own history and to our world today. The corruptibility of politics, generational trauma, mental health, rape and violence against women, civil war, and so many more. Corruptibility was also one that had to severely sound out as I spelled it. And fantasy published in the last four years has been growing increasingly diverse in ways, sometimes, that romance or other genres cannot catch up to. Racially and sexually diverse writers have been dominating the scenes with their fantastic works like R.F. Kuang, Chloe Gong, uh, Rebecca Roanhorse, N.K. Jemison, Tamsin Muir, Travis Baldry, and so on and on and on. Modern fantasy is giving us the medievalisms we want and a wonderfully fantastical and sometimes slightly sci-fi setting, and there can still be romance. With romance as a genre, we can still explore these social critiques. We can, of course, still talk about issues of diversity, racial equality, and justice and all these other big issues in our real world but i think it might hit a little too close to home in romance without the allegory that fantasy provides like couching discussions of racism and the issues of only white writers being accepted into a dragon writer school we are instead faced with these really heavy issues that can detract from the romance possibly question mark it's been done 
it's been done well. I think that sometimes, though, romance readers and writers want to focus on the romance. And this sounds bad. Just uh, help me out, please. Somebody help me. <laughs> do you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, do you mean like <laughs> sending something in a fantastical world automatically might inhibit the... Like you can't have a cozy romance because in a fantasy world you expect it to be something like serious and deep. That's kind of yeah, I agree with Jen. It's the and the cozy fantasy romance hasn't really taken off. It's no. trying, and I it is trying, mm-hmm. and it's something I'd really like to see in which it's low stakes, mm-hmm. not like world ending, yeah. big okay. bad, but mean. more about the interpersonal relationships of yeah. these people who happen to be in a fantasy world, yeah. mm-hmm. and so. it could be fun to see those conventions of fantasy and romance blend if mm-hmm. publishing was more open to it yeah. but right now it does feel like fantasy is so serious yeah all the time. it is like there's fun there's cozy fantasy yeah but like so the cozy romantic fantasy um specifically can't spell treason without tea is by rebecca thorne mm-hmm. and it was lesbians cozy fantasy in a tea house yeah and it's there's like this aspect of romance but i think that me as a romance reader i wanted more from it so that's an excellent point i feel like the funnest quote-unquote fantasy i've read has been the blacksmith queen and i hated that writing yeah that one was like lol yeah you didn't read it because that was before your before you came time yeah like the concepts and the ideas in it were really good i just read it and i'm like i can't believe this woman has published like a ton of books she sounds like a newbie she doesn't listen to this. It's fine. Hope you're not listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I really like that point that, you know, fantasy always feels like there's this some big crazy thing unless mm-hmm. it's cozy and cozy romance fantasy hasn't really come to the forefront yet. So. Probably the closest has been that cafe, that uh, that orc mm-hmm. coffee house thing, right? Oh, yeah. That's what. Yeah. yeah. The Legends and Lattes mm-hmm. and then Can't Spell Treason Without Tea. Yeah. And Rebecca Thorne has a couple other ones, mm-hmm. too. But yeah, I wanted more romance. And it wasn't romance because even though there was an HEA or HFN, the romance wasn't, like, the sole focus of the story. I wonder, too, if sometimes because, like, you have to do so much work for all this world building and, like, set up, you don't want to waste this world on, like, ooh, here's this cutesy little coffee shop story. Right? Instead, you're like, oh, let me go kill the Goblin King. Yes. Kill the Goblin King. <laughs> psych he's actually under a curse and your love can break exactly his curse. it has to be like a lot bigger especially if me as the reader i'm gonna invest all this time into learning about your world and then it's like oh the biggest conflict is it are we using skim milk or goat milk oh. world ending. <laughs> i also have to talk briefly about the tiffany problem have you right. guys heard yeah. of this one yeah okay. like tiffany yeah. was a super common name even i know that yeah one. it was a mi- very medieval but name like, but you, you say can't it put tiffany in a medieval book or i'm gonna like it takes you out of the story yeah yeah yep um yeah it's an anachronism <laughs> that's the word tiffany. for it <laughs> princess tiffany it just sounds wrong yeah. but it's <laughs> and granted, I wonder too, is this a problem that it's always existed for Tiffany or is it kind of lately since Tiffany's been kind of taken on like this white blonde princess spoiled um, kind of th- like in the 80s would have been more acceptable for a Tiffany. I think that's where the Tiffany like oh, trope stems from. Okay. I don't know when we started to give Tiffany this bad name. Listen, Tiffany's a good name. We're mm-hmm. not hating on Tiffany's out there. No, We're but just like, questioning is, like, it in medieval fiction. People do have an idea when you say Tiffany. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So those are my reasons why I think that medieval romance has declined to bring us all back to a solid point. <laughs> um, I think you guys have said many things. Jen has thoughts still. I can see it formulating in I her mean, brain. I don't, I guess those are all definitely good reasons. I do think too, Regency is just so powerful mm. that it really did kind of overtake everything. I think there was a long period, not so long. I say long, wasn't me. But like, I think there was a good chunk of time where historical was solely Scottish mm-hmm. or like, you know, so I think the aughts were the Scottish. And I think yeah. because Scottish, as we talked about in the episode, how many times can I say Scottish, lends itself so well to like the time travel, to the paranormal, yeah. to all of this for whatever reason it may be. Well, I think like Scotland is pretty. Yeah. That's a good setting. And plus you got all the fairies and you got like the mists. Like it Even is a very they... mystical place. Oh, you missed this discussion because you weren't here. So do you know how they used to cure their kilts when they were like finished making it Didn't so they could s- make it oh. waterproof? How? They would dunk it in urine. Yeah. Well, I don't need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> they probably didn't smell as bad. They probably like threw it in some rushes. <laughs> some thresh- thrushes. Yeah. 
I once read this uh, this medieval romance. It was early Scottish medieval, and everybody in the clan mm-hmm. was getting really sick, and they couldn't figure out why. Mm-hmm. It was because the men were having pooping competitions <laughs> over a cliff to see who could lay the biggest log, Wow! and it was over their water source. It's so nice that men are still men. No offense, Thomas. <laughs> Thomas is cool. Romance? It was a romance. Wow. It was uh, They're like biological warfare on themselves. <laughs> they really did. It was a really good book series. I can't remember mm-hmm. the title of it, but it was like all on. It was indie. So. But there's something mystical about Scotland and England. It's just like, ugh. yeah, the English. Yeah, it's dirty. <sighs> Plus, you know, politics. Yeah. And like the English was too busy invading everybody else. So they're going to go invade time periods, too, now. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm going to end this discussion with a caveat, as I always do. I think we might be seeing medieval on the rise again in Romance Landia. I think that with new diverse voices in the publishing sphere like Emma Denny, Lex Croucher, Natasha Siegel, Shelley Parker Chan, Chloe Gong, we're going to finally get those culturally, racially, and sexually diverse books we've all been longing for. We might finally, after all these years, be able to escape the white, Euro heterocentric medieval land we've been stuck in in traditional publishing. I'm already seeing them crop up in the indie space, and I'm really desperately hoping it's only a matter of time before we start getting more outside of fantasy romance and in the classic historical romance realm. Hmm. A little note of hope. Okay. Hopefully. I mean, I still think Regency is just going to overtake them too yeah. much for it to be a big effect. We and want other things besides Regency. I do love a Regency. I don't want to knock Regency, but it's, especially I think with like Netflix is being so popular yeah. and like, it just seems like they're going further and further into Regency. They're just diversifying Regency, not so much like going to other periods. And even then it's a Regency-ism because yeah. um, they even talk about making like this alternate universe mm-hmm. in Bridgerton is the yeah. one we're specifically talking about where um, Queen Charlotte, there's a lot of question into her racial um, profile and what she, her racial profile would have actually been. Yeah. Nobody really knows. We can't agree. So there's this whole alternate universe of where she creates um, land and titles for people of color and especially for black people in the dukedoms and the lorddoms mm-hmm. and all this sort of stuff. And so that's where. Yeah. But that's not in any of the books. It's just right. in the TV show. So it's another ism. It's mm-hmm. a fantasy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's true. So I think our fantasies are still going to be very much a fantasy. Yeah. I think that the line of fantasy in fiction might get blurred a little more. Mm-hmm. I already have trouble deciding what's a fantasy and telling my clerk what's a fantasy and what's not. And she hands this and she's like, is this a fantasy book? No, it's a historical romance, Nancy. Mm -hmm. Okay, anyways. Well, do we have any final thoughts, feelings, opinions? Are you going to start reading them, Thomas? No. No. (laughs) (laughs) I figured. I'm still going to hand you One Night in Heartswood by Emma Denny, though, because I really think you'll like it. Okay. It's... And that's something else. Okay, okay, just kidding. There's one final thing. Mm-hmm. I think that these romances we have going forward are going to be really separate from, like, medieval bodice rippers yeah. in setting and in trope. I mean, I'm, the bodice ripper is dead. Yeah, the bodice ripper is dead. It's dead. Which I mean, we'll cover at some point. I, possibly you can have it exist in, like, dark romance, but that yeah. is the point of dark romance. But yeah. Like, a bodice ripper that you can just buy in Walmart. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, mainstream, like, oh, this is totally fine and cool. Like, that's gone. The medieval romance I am seeing now is, first off, marriage is not an inciting incident anymore because, you know, we've moved beyond that yeah. archaic notion. Like, you can have sex without, yeah, you know, exactly. being a, a um, slut whore. <laughs> Thank you very much. Can I have that on a t-shirt? <laughs> That's my next Pride t-shirt. <laughs> um, but I also, I've seen a lot of tropes coming from fantasy, like the quest the journey, the road trip sort of idea coming into this medieval fantasy I'm seeing now or this rewritten history. Mm. Like, um, so Solomon's crown is, uh, it's two, it's the King of England and the King of France and they have a gay love affair and it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's great. Um, do I remember the King's names? No, I don't. And they definitely didn't have one in real life, but (laughs) there you go. Um, so I think that we're seeing a change of setting too. Like you said, the bodice river is dead. Nobody really wants to breathe that outside of, and there's a place like for it when you know what you're getting into. Yes. Yes. Every so often it can be entertaining to yeah. read one. Slightly cringe. So yeah. there's cool. reasons for it to exist, just not in mainstream publishing as like, here's what we think is a good idea. Yeah. Like and the kind of like that mark of approval is gone. Yes. But I still want medieval. If anybody is out there writing it, just make it like Emma Denny's. Mm-hmm. Cool. So on that note, what are we reading now? Jen, are you reading anything? I actually was reading a little bit at work today because I'm trying to buy new graphic novels for the kids on the pop-up. I read this really cool one, The Wolf Suit. 
oh, I don't remember the author. I'm so sorry. But it was a really cool graphic novel about a lamb who is seeking a safer way to go into the forest for blackberries. So they create a wolf suit to actually go out into the forest then. Talk about allegory. I know. (laughs) It was really good. I was had a surprise ending I did not see coming and it was real it was quick. I do have to say that. Very quick. I it only took me like ten minutes at my desk, so I did not feel bad reading it because I'm trying to decide if I want it for the truck. The art's a little I don't know if the kids would like it. I liked it as an adult. But overall, really cool. Like, if you've got 10 spare minutes as an adult, I would check it out. It was kind of like a cool, like a, it felt like I was reading an adult picture book. Yeah. That's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm reading an advanced reader copy of Tessa Bailey's new book. <laughs> it's called Fangirl Down. It's about golf, and it's really good so it's far. So good. I know Jackie's finished already. I'm working on it, but it's really good. Leave it to Tessa Bailey to make golf hot. Mm-hmm. Like, I also had an advanced copy. It doesn't come out till February. We're so sorry. <laughs> but um, definitely mark your calendars because it has been my favorite romance I've read so far this year. Like, I could not stop reading it. It was... <laughs> Just wait. Just wait, Thomas, until you get to that scene. You'll know the scene I'm talking about, the one the dedication is for. Did you read the dedication? I did not. Okay, go read the dedication, <laughs> and then you'll know what to look forward to later on in the book. Okay. Fantastic. Oh, it was so much fun, and you stole mine, so that's fine. Um, <laughs> I actually just finished reading Talking About Chloe Gong. I finished reading her new one, which was her adult debut. Oh. It's Immortal Longings. <gasps> yes. Oh, it was fantastic. Um, it is a sci-fi fantasy, like, futuristic dystopian setting and chloe gong got famous because she did her rewrites of romeo and juliet with um these violent delights this one immortal longings is supposedly a retelling or reimagining of antony and cleopatra which i can kind of get at the end especially but the premise is that there is a city that was once two cities and there were once two monarchies except five years ago the princess of one of the monarchies staged a coup and killed everybody except for the despotic leader of the other monarchy and so now she's still alive she's on the run um and then every year the despot holds a hunger games type tournament where 88 contestants compete to the death um and the last one standing gets like all their fi- like all their whatever waived and you know they don't owe her any college money loans. yeah their college <laughs> loans um all this sort of stuff but the trick is that this is sci-fi fantasy because people can jump bodies Oh. Yeah. And there's like technology and there's people jumping and it was absolutely fantastic. The ending, I gasped at the ending and now I have to wait for the second one to come out, which I'm very upset about. So, you know. Sounds fun. Yeah, it was really good. And it was really a good social critique. Ooh. Mm, yes. Yes. A very good allegory, if we will. Yes, exactly. So, all right. Well, I think that draws this final part to a close we are finally done with a medieval yeah we'll see <laughs> i'm gonna mention it as often as i can you guys know that but um what are we talking about next thomas we're gonna talk about firefighters yay, yay. so get your aloe vera ready <laughs> <laughs> and have 911 on speed dial because things are gonna get spicy <laughs> apparently thomas is in charge of the jokes next time <laughs> which is fine because my jokes are terrible so jen is gonna be on vacation yeah the lucky duck um so she uh, is sadly going to not be with us next time but that's okay because thomas will be with us next yeah. time so all good okay cool sweet yes Just call me jen <laughs> okay jen um we will be talking about firefighters make sure you tune in for that one and don't forget to listen to all of our mini sods that have come out between now and then in our past ones and whatever you guys know what i'm talking about if you have questions comments concerns you can always email us at romantics at noble.org jen thomas what do we always say ray john hey there you go <laughs> on the padawan that's not even close i, I know it's, it's a good try it's so hard. <laughs> bye So it's all good. All well and good. Well, as a shout out to Noble, as always, thank you, dear listener. And a shout out to, what am I saying? You're saying shout out to Noble. Okay. Yeah. 